Okay, so we're in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 13. Actually, let's read from verse 1 to 13, all right? Let's do that, just to get more context than where we've been, yeah? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a joy and your gift of grace for us to be here this morning. We don't deserve all that you've given us. We don't deserve the many gifts that we have in Christ. We don't deserve your grace, your love, your mercy. We don't deserve the community you give us in the church. We don't deserve to witness um, the gift um, that you've given us in so many ways. So, Father, we are and we desire to be thankful for all of these things you've given us, but mostly we want to be thankful for Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we learn more about Jesus and his baptism and his temptation and all of those things, again, we want our hearts to be stirred. We want our hearts to be stirred by who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And so do that. 
through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God also made his crowning in glory of creation, which is man. Man was made in the image of God after his likeness. God blessed man and commanded him to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over all of his creation. Adam, the man was made first, Eve, the woman, preceded Adam. They were both naked and unashamed. God then planted a garden named Eden. They were placed in this garden to take care of it. God established some garden rules with them. He said to them, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. All God created was, in his own words, good. Adam and Eve delighted in the relationship they had with God and each other. It was paradise. But then something happened that spoiled it all. The serpent, the craftiest of all of God's creations, managed to persuade them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the same tree God has said you shall not eat of those, you know, the same tree God had commanded them not to eat from. As soon as they take a bite of the tree, of the fruit, the goodness and blessing of the garden begins to wither. Sin enters the world and Adam and Eve fall out of communion with God. Not long after this tragic event, God makes an interesting promise to Adam and Eve. He lets them know of his glorious plan to redeem his rebellious people through a son of Eve who will come and crash the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. Okay? So what's happening? Many years after this promise, God calls a man named Abraham and makes a promise to him. And God says to him, hey, Abraham, through your family... Goodness and blessing will be restored back to all the nations of the world. Abraham's great-grandson named Judah also receives this promise that a king is going to originate from his side of the family tree and that this king will be loved and adored by the people and he's going to bring about peace and harmony and goodness and blessing to the Jews. The first king out of the line of Judah, is a king named David. Although David done a lot of awesome things and um, his achievements as a king was great, it becomes evident that he's not that snake crusher or the conquering king that was promised. He's not. However, God makes a promise to David that the king is going to eventually come from his line But as we go on in the story, all of his successes are total failures. They embrace money, sex, and go as low as practicing the worship of other gods. And at this time, things get really bad for Israel. 
Israel as a nation hit rock bottom, um, and they end up as captives in Babylonia. Hope is lost. Israel is in captivity. The whole plan of this conquering king and crushing the head of the snake is a thing of the past. But during these dark and depressing days, there are these mysterious and yet radical group of guys called prophets. And they keep talking, they keep talking, they keep telling the people um, um, that this king is coming and they shouldn't give up and they should not lose hope, but they should believe what God has said and all of these things. And so what begins to happen is that the Old Testament begins to conclude without the appearance of the snake-crushing king and without the fulfillment of God's promises. 700 or so years later, this is what happens. Imagine that you've traveled back in time. And you find yourself in the middle of the first century by the Jordan River in the midst of a densely packed crowd. Everyone is there to get a glimpse of the man everybody has been talking about. His name is John, John the Baptist. And almost everyone has come not only to see who this man is, but to hear his message of repentance and receive forgiveness of sins through baptism. John was a man of conviction. He confronted the people by telling them to change how they were living. His message was clear and direct. He would say to them, hey, you need to get ready. You need to prepare yourself. The king is coming. You need to be rescued from your sins. You need to stop running from God and run to him. So you're standing there. And you've seen, and you've heard, and by your own admission, you're a sinner in need of forgiveness of sins. So you join the line, waiting your turn to be baptized. And as you wait, something strange begins to unfold. You notice John, the baptizer, is distracted from his task of baptizing. One section of the crowd grabs his attention and he then fixes his eye on a man in the crowd and this man leaves the crowd and begins to walk to the water's edge and you notice that John's eyes begin to widen because he realizes that he's come face to face with the Messiah the son of God, the snake-crushing king who they've all been eagerly waiting for. Look at verse 9. Again, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The Gospel of Mark is a very unique biography of Jesus, okay? We see an example of this right here in this verse in how he introduces Jesus. And in introducing Jesus, he doesn't provide us with any background information. 
right? Nothing about his upbringing, parents or birth, nothing about visits from angels and wise men and Jesus' ancestry, nothing. Mark's gospel doesn't include any of these well-known facts about Jesus. Doesn't. The only fact about Jesus he provides is that he came from a town named Nazareth. That's all we get here. And that's not cool. Because back then, Nazareth was one of those towns most people who were from there wouldn't admit they were from there. Right? It's like certain cities or towns. I've heard Bakersfield is one of them in California. I'm so sorry if you're from Bakersfield. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But I have a friend who's from Bakersfield, and he's very much like, there's nothing there kind of thing. Right? It's like one of those towns. Right? Nazareth wasn't cool. It wasn't sophisticated. It wasn't up and coming. It was a lowly town. So here is this Jesus, the long-awaited king of the Jews. I'm sorry if you're from Bakersfield. I just, I don't know. So here's Jesus, the long-awaited king of the Jews, the son of God, the one spoken of by the prophets in the Old Testament to come and deliver Israel from oppression. And all we're told about him here is that he's from Nazareth, all right? He's from Nazareth. His arrival is anticlimactic. He's a normal Jew from a low-ranking town. David Garland, in his commentary on Mark, puts it this way. He says, this Messiah does not stand out from the rest of the crowds. He does not come with some special aura or halo. Now, again, as you know, Mark is one of four books dedicated to the life of Jesus. Mark's version of most things is um, short and concise. While the others, like Matthew, Luke, John, um, th- what they do is they, they include more details. They, they, they have similar stories, but they include more details. For example, Matthew's gospel also um, includes the account of Jesus' baptism, and he includes what he does is he includes way more details than Mark. While Mark just says, Jesus came to the Jordan to be baptized by John, and then the next thing he tells us in verse 10 is what? He tells us that Jesus is coming out of the water. That is it. Matthew includes more. He lets us know of a conversation that took place between John and Jesus um, before Jesus was immersed in the water. Um, Matthew, I'm going to read, and you don't have to go there, and you can. Actually, let's go there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3, um, verse 13, and we're going to look at verse 13 to 15. Matthew um, chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. If you're there, say, I'm there. Amen. Yeah, good. All right. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Okay? Mark includes that. But what Mark doesn't include is this part. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that is Jesus, consented. All right? You can go back to Mark now. And as you go there, so we're told here that when Jesus walks to John, and ask him to be baptized, John initially refuses. John is basically, I mean, his response is right. He's basically saying, hey, you're like the promised king, 
right? And you're the rescuer, and you're asking me to baptize you. No, you are the one that should be baptizing me. But Jesus responds by saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is saying, God desires this of me. This is what he wants me to do. And so what happens is that John ends up baptizing Jesus. And if we go back to Mark chapter 1, and if we look at verse 10, it tells us that as Jesus emerges out of the water, the clouds in the sky part, the spirit descends on him like a dove, and then an audible voice booms from the sky. It's the voice of God the Father, and he says to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. Also, notice that when Jesus comes out of the water and is affirmed by God the Father, as in, you're my beloved son, I'm so pleased with you. At this point, Jesus hasn't done anything in terms of he's not been active in ministry. He hasn't healed anyone there's been no miracle, no feeding of thousands of people, no debating the religious leaders, no walking on water, no death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. Jesus has not been involved in any kind of ministry at this stage. But yet, God the Father looks upon God the Son, Jesus Christ, and pronounces his love over him. Why? Because he loves him. This absolutely reminds me of the first time I held our children in my arms not long after they were born, right? Newborn babies don't do much, okay? They don't smile. They don't talk back to you. They just don't do much. All they do is kind of, um, um, you know, cry, eat, pee, and poop. That's all they do. And it's not impressive, okay? But as a father... As I held my children in my arms for the first time, I had this deep and abiding love for them. A love that was not based on anything they've done. They've not done anything. Okay? They've been crying all night, keeping me up all night. I'm tired. That's all they've been doing. But yet, my love for them was deep and abiding. And I loved them. And this is kind of what's happening here. I'm saying kind of, right? Because my relationship with my kids is like kind of just nothing compared to God and, you know, Jesus, God the Father and Jesus. This is nothing. This is what's kind of happening here. Jesus has done nothing. But God looks upon him and pronounces that you are my son. I'm pleased with you. And if you're here... You're a Christian, you identify with Jesus, you can be confident that everything, amen, that was said over Jesus is said over you. Because he's your Savior, God's heart is filled with love for you. You're God's child, and he's very pleased with you. And that's hard to grasp, right? It's hard to grasp. 
Because I think, personally, if I can like, be honest here, like, I feel loved by God, okay, if I'm doing well, okay? If I'm praying and I'm reading my Bible and I'm attending church and I'm being a good dad and I'm being a good husband and I'm not freaking out and towards, you know, when I'm, when I'm good, you know, I'm like, yeah, God should love me. Absolutely. Look at all these things I've been doing, right? But to realize that God loves me even if I don't do those things. But I do those things not in order to gain God's love, but because God loves me and he is pleased with me. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and what I mean by that is that you are not a follower of Jesus and you don't believe in Jesus, you can, in trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can enter into a relationship with God. That means that everything that was spoken over Jesus, God who created everything, who is magnificent and who is intimate and all of these things, God will pronounce and speak his love and appreciation over you. You've just got to identify with Christ. So in speaking words of affirmation to Jesus, God was not only affirming Jesus as his beloved son, he was also affirming Mark's point in the first verse of this book, which reveals to us that Jesus is God in the flesh. If we go to Mark verse 1, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, just spilt my water. My wife is smiling. I spill water all the time. All right. All of these things, right? Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I mean, it, it talks about Jesus being the Son of God. And that is huge. And in God saying that over, God is affirming this truth. He really is. And what that means for us, the significance of that for us now is that we must present Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God as we tell others about him. We live in a culture that is very accepting of general spiritual truths. Everywhere I go, most of the time, I, I, I spark conversations with people. All right? Most of the time, oh, he's got a cool accent. Let me talk to him. And whenever they say what I do, I'm always like, yeah. Oh, cheers, Dan. You are a lovely man. Thank you. Um, I don't want to spill this one. Um, wherever I go. But, I mean, this is it. This is, this is where. And when they ask me what I need to do, um, what I do, I always tell them I'm a pastor. And then it's that weird conversation now of, like, are you going to, like, try and, like, get me in a headlock and put a gun to my head and say, believe in Jesus? You know, that's what it feels like. And I'm always very much like, hey, I can't force you, right, to love Jesus. I just can't. I just can't make you, like, hold you and say, Jesus is awesome. He's the greatest need of your life. And you must. You No, I can't do that. And so, culture we live in views Jesus as 
just another prophet, just another good guy, just this Jewish carpenter who did some compassionate work, and that is how they view it. But the moment we absolutely turn around and say, no, no, Jesus is God, and he was God in the flesh, and he is king of the world and creator of the world, and as a result of that, you need to kind of surrender your life to the king because he's a great... You know, once we start going in that direction, most of the conversations turn sour. If we accept Jesus as our Christ, and if we accept the Bible as the authoritative word of God, we must reveal the Jesus who is revealed within the Bible. And the Jesus that is revealed um, in the Bible is the divine Son of God who offers forgiveness to all, all who believe in him. Immediately following Jesus' baptism, the same spirit that descended on him now drives him away from anyone and everyone into the wilderness to face temptation from Satan. Look at verse 12. It says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And again, it's interesting, right, to note that the very first thing Jesus was compelled to do after his baptism wasn't to go and preach and do miracles, Right? Instead, he was driven um, into the wilderness. And this mandate was not this gentle appeal. Um, R.C. Sproul reminds us that the force of this passage is that Christ was compelled by the Holy Spirit, driven urgently into a desolate, God-forsaken place. And so Mark wastes no time in letting us know that it was the Spirit that drove Jesus to the wilderness. In other words, Jesus gets sent into the wilderness by God's Spirit. Sometimes that's what happens in our lives. God leads us to a circumstance that brings us to the end of ourselves. We have no experience or connections or resources to fix it. And it is at that point when we can't fix it ourselves, that is when we look to God. That is when we rely on God. I have had a crazy week. It's been intense. Family have been sick. I've been freaking out about everything just anxiety. It's been intense. God keeps bringing me to the end of myself. And most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, I can only say, God help me. There have been so many times when I've scheduled and carved out some time for prayer. And in that prayer time, I've just been like, God help me. God help me. My heart is a mess, and I'm a mess, and I need your help, and that's all I've prayed. And in those times, what I could say is that, oh, it's the devil. The devil sent me here. The devil made, no. Maybe this week I've had has been God driving me into this wilderness experience. And it's been incredible, I ironic that this is what I've been studying this week. And it's been so helpful for me. 
And so after being driven urgently to the wilderness, verse 13 says that he was, that is Jesus, in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Right? In the book of Genesis, not long after the Father, the Son, and the Spirit combined to create the world and humanity, what's the very next thing that happens? Satan launches an attack and tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, here in Mark, after God the Father and the Spirit participate in the inauguration of Jesus the Son, um, what's the very next thing that happens? History repeats itself. Surprise, surprise. Jesus is driven urgently into the wilderness, and there he is tempted by Satan. You see the parallels? Again, this event in Jesus' life appears in Matthew. Matthew includes a dialogue between Jesus and Satan, includes exactly what Satan did and said in order to tempt Jesus. Mark, on the other hand, is super brief, right? All he tells us here is how long Jesus was in the wilderness, 40 days, who tempted him, Satan, and other seemingly random information about how he was surrounded by wild animals and the ministry he received from angelic beings. That is all Mark provides for us. But before we kind of disregard Mark's version in favor of Matthew's or Luke's, we must remember that Mark's gospel is inspired by God through his spirit. And what that means is that it's sufficient. And if all we had was Mark, it would be enough. To his original audience, who Mark was writing to, his account of the life of Jesus was enough to help them know and follow Jesus. And a good example of this is the inclusion of the fact that Jesus was with what? Wild animals. Kind of random. Why does he include that? This is why. At the time Mark was writing... Christians were under intense persecution from the Roman Empire. One of the reasons for this hatred towards Christians was that they refused to participate in emperor worship. Because of this, Christians were captured and thrown into the Roman Colosseums to defend themselves against wild animals and wild beasts like angry lions and bears and leopards. And as a result, many believers at the time, lost friends and family members to wild animals in the arena. And there are actually real factual accounts of how some of those Christians felt when they were on their way to the arenas and coliseums, knowing that this was it. They were about to lose their life because of Jesus Christ. Because of this, many Christians were struggling with doubt and were close to turning away from God. But as they receive and read Mark's gospel, they were reminded that Jesus understands their struggle. Not just with this wilderness experience, but if you read throughout the gospels, 
And you get to 4 in 15, 16, it talks about Jesus and his suffering and um, his death and all of that, what he went through. And so these believers are reading it and they're really encouraged and comforted by the fact that, man, like Jesus, their Lord and Savior, the one they're following and committed their life, he absolutely understands everything that they're going through. They were comforted, not just because they have a high priest who is able to empathize with their weakness, but in the same way Jesus was ministered to by angels in the wilderness, they too were being comforted by God through his Holy Spirit in the midst of intense suffering and persecution. And so the presence of the angels was to assure Jesus that his beloved father, was watching over him. Jesus went the road, traveled the road all his followers must go. And as he was able to do it, because, and he was able to do it, sorry, because of words of love and acceptance that had been spoken over him. And so this is the truth. And this is what you, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, must expect. You must expect to be led to a place where you will feel alone. To a place where you will feel abandoned. Some of you have been there. Some of you are currently in that season. And some of you, you will enter into that season. It will be a place where you struggle to believe that, is God good? Is he really in control of everything and everyone? The people around me, Christians around me, are having a great time. should see how they're singing in church. They're so strong in their faith. My faith is weak. And I am struggling with bitterness. I have this hatred towards this person, okay? And I'm talking about my hatred towards this group of people, and I can't shake it off. And I feel alone because I feel God is not bringing about healing in my life. Physical, emotional, whatever it is, it can cause us to feel abandoned and in a wilderness. And so, the question is, what helps? What helps you navigate through these wilderness experiences? And the response is, what was spoken over Jesus when he was baptized? And that is, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Once we remind ourselves, once we preach these truths to ourselves and remind us that God 
absolutely loves us and cares for us and he is pleased with us. Not because of anything we've done or because we identify with an associate with his son Jesus Christ. Once we root and remind ourselves of this simple truth, this will be what will help us navigate the stresses and the difficulties um, and of life that we go through. That is what helps. I'm not saying it's going to bring complete healing, but preach the truth of who you are in Christ to yourself regularly. Because it's what will help you and sustain you through life's difficulties. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for us all in this room that you would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we can not only hear but fully understand and believe how much you love us and how pleasing we are to you. And remind us that the only reason that you are pleased with us is because of Jesus, your Son, the Messiah, who came and died and rose again so that we may enter into a relationship with you. And so, Father, open up the eyes of our hearts to believe this truth. And to believe it in a way that changes our lives and shapes the decisions we make and shapes or influences the thoughts we have towards ourselves and the thoughts we have towards each other. Help us. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is what we're going to do. Rather than transitioning quickly um, to some singing, we want you guys to get into groups of three or four and pray. And pray about some of the things you've heard. Pray and ask God to help you not only hear these words, but believe them. And so we want it to be a time where we mutually encourage each other through prayer. And so, groups of three to four, and then um, when the time is up, Dan and the team will lead us in musical worship. Is that all clear? Let's go. Enjoy your time. <laughs>